This is Big Man Tyrone, and you're about to watch the MTG Cabal cast with your hosts, Wode, Thirsty, and Reptar. Sub to us on all your podcast networks at MTG Cabal cast and YouTube. All right, guys. Welcome to the newest episode of the Cabal cast, the first for December. Hopefully, mm-hmm. the year will end on an up note. Anyways... Today, we're going to be covering a little bit more of some of the day-to-day stuff for vendors, how models differ from one to the other, basically, you know, what company A does compared to company B, how things work inside oh. each of those separate entities. Uh, I'll, I'll start us off with the company I used to work for, where the magic department, and this is what we're talking about in specific, is how it interacts with magic rather than yes. any other products they sell. Uh, where I worked, the magic department was very generalized. It was basically we had our employees and they fulfilled every single role in the department. Mm -hmm. Some companies are a lot more specialized. You have one person that does intake, you know, whatever. And generally we had two to three people that would process intake, but they didn't just process intake. They'd also pull. They'd also integrate inventory. They'd also pack and ship. And it was just a all-inclusive magic specialist was the title. And if it had to do with magic cards, you could be asked to do it at any time. Didn't matter. I mean, that was kind of how things ran there. How were they for you? Uh, so I worked for Troll. That was uh, my first job for a large vendor. And Troll is very specialized because they cover so many verticals. So when you go to trollandtoad.com and you see along the top all the games or types of games they serve, each one for them is a product category. Similarly, when you look at their buy list and if you were to download some of their Excel spreadsheets, you'll notice that there are actual uh, category codes on there and they correspond to things. M for magic, P for Pokemon, 4 is something you wouldn't expect. It might be Yu-Gi-Oh! And... Magic itself uh, ran similar to the other card games because they were all very fluid like that as opposed to uh, board games, minis, etc. For Magic, though, everything starts with the intake position. So named similarly, functions slightly similar. Uh, intake for Troll was more about dealing with uh, incoming buy lists off the website. There was a lot of work that went into it at the time. They didn't have what they call now a reverse cart system where you can just submit it directly. People actually had to take in that email, compare it to the buy list that was on the site, and then give you a yes or no. And there are going to be a lot of people that remember that because we're talking almost a decade now when I first started this. Yeah. And if you go back on Reddit, you're just going to see Troll get railed for this because people were saying yes to buy lists, but there was no connection between intake person one versus intake person two and if one yes to buy a list two yes to buy a list but one entered their buy list before two and two contained the same item that zeroed out the need at troll buy a list two they got the yes would get bounced back to the person and like that just created a huge amount of friction because there is no you know reverse card it wasn't done it uh in real time it was basically a competition first in first out and They also did a bit of uh, pack cracking when it came to set releases. Uh, Troll gets infinite product from Southern, so at that point in time, you could only start cracking at 12.01 a.m., either, I think, the Thursday before release, so you could get all your singles processed and placed, and then you could start shipping at 12.01 a.m. on Friday. So that was kind of an all-hands-on-deck so for anybody who worked in magic 
that wasn't dedicated to pack cracking. You could come in and do it if you wanted. I believe intake was dedicated uh, towards some of that. So it was a very specialized yeah. role with exactly what it sounds like, incoming product. But it did not deal with all of the ways that Troll would intake product. There is another intake role, there, there was, uh, called acquisitions. And again, that role does what it sounds like. They were actually in charge of going out and acquiring product that was listed elsewhere. So that wasn't necessarily with competitors. That was more Craigslist, Facebook Marketplace now, uh, Magic Online Traders League for anybody that used that website. They were basically looking at open marketplaces to see who was selling at a price they liked. It didn't have to be buy list. It could be above buy list, but as long as there was uh, a profit to make or they knew that they weren't getting enough of something in, they could go make that outreach and acquisitions would, you know, go out and bring in whatever they needed from whatever non-competitor source that was required. Now, was that the type of thing that when you were doing that, uh, you were paid based on the commission of the size of the intake, or did you just get a flat rate and were expected to maintain a quota? Because we had, like, our intake, it was just reverse card. Mm -hmm. It was easy. We had two to three people that would process the orders when they came in verify condition that was it we didn't have anyone that was like you know outside sources uh, so was it so just for commission or so how? the the job positions that i'm going to go through are actually given to me that somebody worked uh, through all mm -hmm. of them and i'm going to have them on oh. uh, a patreon only cast later this week to actually discuss these roles in depth because there's a lot more to them than what i'm going to cover here but right. i believe no role at troll and toad was commission based or based okay. on uh, sale or acquisition while you were working on premises it changed if you were going to a show at that point in time or you were buying on behalf of troll and toad for uh something kind of show related or they sent you out somewhere specifically um, like buying a store out or something uh, or yeah essentially that, that makes sense yeah Sorry, i didn't mean to no, no, no. There. It's fine. It's a, it's a good question because not every company has this kind, this, in, these in, this intake and acquisition role, two separate roles, you know, very and specialized to what they do, and it was more about just kind of patching up product. You, I think you had your slate of where you need to go and what you needed to hit, so it wasn't like competitive in this in that sense. So you wouldn't need to necessarily offer a commission in that regard because you were just looking, you know, to to fill those holes. Yeah. Um, and like going through the, the product life cycle. So after intake and acquisitions, you know, what would you guys do next at mini? So the product has been brought in, it's rung up, it's on the website. I put in an order for something, you know, that comes in. So we did pick lists, which I'm sure troll does as well. Yep. It's basically, it is a list of every card by alphabetized first, uh, because the way our inventory was sorted was it was chronological, full alphabetical within the set. Okay. And when the pick list came in, it was chronological, full alphabetical by the set. So you would take that pick list once, you know, obviously divide it up because yep. you're not going to have one person pull a thousand orders in a day. Uh, you take all of those pick lists, you put them down at the filling station, not a gas station. That's where your orders are filled. Mm-hmm. And it's all alphabetical. It's indicated by condition based on if it's a penny sleeve or not. And you go through and it says, all right, the first card is 
alpha planes near mint pull it you scan your barcode at each stage yep and that lets the system know that one i'm the one filling this order so if something messes up i'm the one and two that card has now been processed in addition to that you scan a condition bar so that it matches oh okay and the system will not let you continue if it doesn't match or you don't scan an out of stock Mm -hmm. those are the only two options match condition out of stock if it's something where they're ordering like you know a near mint foil and we have one that's borderline lp we'll hold the order we'll contact the person and say hey this is what we've got do you want that or would you rather just have us do it out of stock you know return the difference whatever yeah and that was one of the biggest things we did now that was separate from the retail orders because our warehouse was near the retail site okay so we would also have retail orders come in separate and they had to be out the door by 9 a.m because they had to be at the store when the store opened which was obviously a nightmare for set release days yes because for two and a half days prior you are scrambling that's it you're locked in on that Yeah. yeah Packs opened, stuff sorted, integrated, alphabetized, in the systems, quantities right, orders filled, done. Mm-hmm. So those come in a separate pick list. You do those immediately, and that's actually usually you have everyone pick a whole order. That's not done as a pick list. You pick the whole order, you take it over, and it goes on top of the invoice sheet mm-hmm. so that everything stays together so you can verify if something's missing. It wasn't on the invoice, but it is showing up in the system. Mm-hmm. Let's see what happened. And from there, it goes to the packing station. So same deal. Someone scans the barcode for the order. Mm-hmm. They scan their name barcode. They say it's done. They pack it up. Yep. At that point, we would put it in one of those post office bins. And when that bin got full, we took it over to the line and it shipped out. Yep. So the entire process was contained within our department. No one from the warehouse would ever touch cards. They wouldn't touch anything but a sealed box that had stuff in it okay and that was mostly out of a concern of like all right well we don't want to put too much on the warehouse for them to have to know stuff yep on top of the warehouse which is already a nightmare based on you know they what all organization you see yeah they're all bad there's yep. no such thing as a clean warehouse right even gts despite their immaculate looking warehouses still lose this stuff constantly and wanting to have people that knew magic over there so mm-hmm. that if there was something subtle that came up where you had wait is this real yeah i'm not quite sure is the condition on i'm not quite sure that way you had people that knew that were touching the card at first yep. and they could immediately step in and say hey this is wrong this is right and try to get any issues solved before they arose yep. um, my understanding is that's not how all companies do it I believe some companies have specialists, which Again, you basically yep. just touched on. Uh, and that was, you know, the t- basic workflow was we're there from 8 to 5. By 9 o'clock, all the retail orders are out, and the people who are doing buybacks are finishing up buybacks if they have big ones. Mm-hmm. Or we just immediately get to the pick list. And then, of course, as I'm sure at Troll, there's the project list, which never ends and constantly has new stuff added to it for this is a project we need to work on sometime in the next indefinite futurity oh yeah that, that, verifying inventory levels or whatever yeah that was all obfuscated up a level actually towards where uh where i was doing my work with the uh, business intelligence work um so I, we might have skipped the part maybe not so between the a buy order received and the cards being placed in the warehouse 
I you know they're they're read in obviously what goes yeah. on be- or what went on there so when and this there's two different processes to this there's the online buy list mm-hmm. and then there's the show buy list so the okay. online buy list it shows up in a package we see the buy list number yep. we verify here's the buy list great we're going to verify the quantity that is then put in a buyback box mm-hmm. that goes into an office and the buybacks are batch uploaded rather than one buyback at a time. So we did batch uploads typically Monday, Wednesday, Friday, okay. depending. And it was just however many buybacks we had. Now that they're verified, upload, throw them in. And the exception to that is obviously your show buybacks. Yes. So some companies, when they go to shows, they itemize their buybacks throughout the weekend. Yep. We didn't. That is a lot of overhead that we just didn't want to deal with, especially because we were the warehouse employees as well. So we would fly back Sunday and be right back at work the next day. Entering and everything else. Yeah. Yeah. So what would happen is that would go into the same office as all the other buybacks. Management would get it. They would catalog all of it. And they would check, you know, all right, about how much money did we spend? Great. About how much do we have in buys? Cool. Mm-hmm. We're within normal, reasonable limits, you know, where it's whatever percentage your company establishes. At that point, okay, I've made the spreadsheet. I have my CSV. I'm going to upload this batch. And that honestly could sometimes take two to three weeks. Jeez, okay. Depending on what else happens. Because I, GP Kansas City last year or the year before, mm-hmm. uh, they, Modern Horizons came out that weekend and there was a show. Yeah, yeah. So when you get back from that show, you're dealing with a Modern Horizons release. You're not uploading that batch at all. Understood, yeah. So you've got, you know, potentially five to six figures in buy that's kind of just sitting there waiting to be processed. Mm-hmm. And once that batch gets in there, all right, everything's batched, same as online buy lists. I have uploaded this batch. Guys, here you go. Integrate this. So at that point, everything's kind of in a random order. We would then sort it by set, and then we would alpha within set. And of course, we have the 26 trays that anyone who's worked somewhere with cards is I've familiar seen with. Yeah. Yeah. Buy them on Amazon. Yeah, they're amazing. Oh. And, you know, alpha them out, put them all back in the box, and then throw them into the inventory from there. Got it. And same deal. To- chronological, alphabetical, etc. And that's, that was basically the flow of the day. We have morning, you send orders out. Afternoon, you're taking orders in and filling and sorting. And that's Mm -hmm. basically all you're doing the whole time. Okay. A lot of that is fairly similar to what went on at Troll. There are two uh, roles at Troll. There's the sorter and uh, the verifier that deal with uh, the biolists once they come in the sorter yeah. is exactly what it sounds like just sorting all all that stuff out as it comes in because it's got to get back into inventory but you are the last layer of defense really it gets to you you sort it out so it can be pushed into the warehouse by that role right and uh, the verifier is also what it sounds like and the this is like one of the only sentences i kept that you might hear repeated this is the job where everyone just kind of hates you because you catch everyone else's mess-ups. Yep. So basically, this is uh, condition checking, sorting, uh, sorting checks, everything 
uh, happens between uh, a buy list entry and warehouse right there. You know, you are the last line to make sure that everything is going to go into the system as it should because it meets quality check. And it's weird that that role and the um, the people receiving the buy lists straddle kind of the sorter and should also have con- uh, condition checks on both ends. So when so when it is received at the sorter, you know if, there's, if anything's been messed up or needs to be retagged because the person opening and verifying the buy list should have known. And the I- the idea of having verification right before it goes into the warehouse ver- versus spot checking the warehouse, kind of weird. But it it is what it is for that point in time where Troll was a household name and one of the largest just vendors in the industry you know they were the ones vacuuming up everything at that point in time things might have changed but this was kind of a necessary role so once everything's gone through sorting and all issues handled they're ready to go back into the warehouse it then goes back into its section of the warehouse so it goes to uh you know whoever deals with magic in the warehouse that will put it back and there it rests until it comes in on a purchase order from there, it's basically exactly what you said, except troll buy, uh, troll purchase orders are varied across that product catalog, and a an order is basically in its own bin, uh, and you scan it onto that onto that bin, and thus it can be tracked across the warehouse as it goes or is filled through all product categories. Eventually hitting one last stopgap check where somebody t- picks up that entire PO, reads down the PO, verifies everything Make is sure there. Make sure it's there. Yeah, yep. and then it hits uh, you know, packaging and uh, shipping to be picked up by USPS or, or what have you. Otherwise, it's basically the exact same thing. You know, now, at the verification warehouse. stage, uh, once it's in the warehouse, was were the magic product in that case, so say they got, you know, Mage Knight, along with the magic singles. Mm-hmm. Would the magic singles be separate or would they be enclosed in a box that they couldn't get in? Because ours were enclosed. So once it left our room, mm-hmm. that was it. There was no check in place after that. It was just, here's magic order one yep. that matches up with what's supposed to be here. Great, there it goes. Was that how it was or uh, were they able to look through it? Uh, no, the, the, the bins were just, like you said, postal bins. Um, yeah for the most part and orders were bundled together because everything was continuously added. And then that entire order re-verif it was that order wasn't placed in its final box uh, Mm -hmm. until it got re-verified and shipped out because there are some, uh, or are and were some extenuating circumstances that would change the way something needs to be shipped out for a very long time because trolls dealt with minis. They had a difficulty determining how to ship minis and cards and not get the dreaded hey we didn't receive this card or this mini in this package and it actually being there but in the packaging itself because these are loose minifigs and you need to bundle them properly and they went so so far as to like put you know take the cards top load them seal them up whatever and just like tape them to the inside of the box somewhere so they would be locatable and they ran into huge problems with uh shipping and just people opening boxes and not realizing where their cards were kept and you might think like 
oh, well, how could you just miss what you ordered when you opened the box? And it is kind it of... It happens a lot. It is. And, it's, and you don't really think about how awkward it is to sort through a package that can be so varied like that, that you might miss something in all the packaging that you're given because some of these minis are still wicked expensive and frail. Yeah. You have to package them like like you're handling a child. You know, you have to swaddle them the entire way through, you know, bubble wrap them if you have to, uh, whatever you're going to put internally and think about that. Right? You have this this mini, let's say it's, uh, it's a, a tall mini, it's a big... Uh, big hero clicks right so you're talking somewhere like eight to ten inches so you know the size of the box that's going to come in that's a really big box to have like four magic cards in as well so now you have this figure that's bubble wrapped that's inside let's say we'll use um that standard like brown paper packaging you know so it's just like that mushed kind of crinkled paper yeah where do you put the magic cards in that package so somebody's going to recognize that they're still there in the order or not lose them when they're opening it up you know and that was a problem that it took a very long time to solve. And it happened, didn't happen a lot, but it happened every now and again. And they knew immediately that these mixed orders like that were going to be a problem. But they would kind of rather eat that chance than yeah. deal with saying, okay, no, you can't put this order together. It's got to be two separate and we're going to charge you for shipping twice or something like that. You know, they, they did the best to try and get that done. That's something I've noticed is common with a lot of minis because we had the same problem. Uh, so the minis department was run very similar, mm -hmm. basically, separate area, whatever. Uh, but there were still minis that, like, uh, Rage of Demons, there was one that was one of the beholders with, like, the tongue. Yep. That tongue broke off of 90% of them out of the package. And then half of the ones that made it out of the package would lose the tongue in transit no matter what you did and yep. like we used packing peanuts everything so that's one of those things that i think just as kind of an aside universally anyone that ships minis is going to struggle with that and it sucks yep but that's again why you kind of have like this specialist type of role where all right well i'm going to figure out how to do this yeah and as, so the, as best as possible yeah you, know, you mentioned those product those projects right that was one of them like there was a part where um I was just walking through the warehouse going to get uh, water and there was like a bunch of managers musing over this box that they had received back and it was um, a ship back of uh, a large mini and a Caracas and we're in the mid 2000s here so the Caracas is almost like a hundred some dollars Yeah. and what happened was because it was this big mini and one singular magic card they packaged everything up as best they could to secure it and so okay you have this really big awkwardly sized box because this mini is so ridiculously sized that the and the crocus is in there what they did was they secured the crocus inside the like whatever case it was in to keep it from getting damaged during shipping and like taped it to somewhere inside the box but they didn't just yeah. like tape it there and forget it they actually like put they use a specific color of tape non-unique packaging like let's say blue on the inside from yeah. like one of the the top flaps down and i i was there sorry it wasn't for a send out a back it was a send out they were just like hey check this out this is what we're doing right now we think we got this and so they ran that line of like blue tape from the top flap like all the way down to wherever the caracas was just to signal like hey there's something else in this package like, this is a unique identifier here. And I, I think eventually it might have just turned into, like, 
cards and cases in like a mailer in like a bubble mailer inside the the mini box uh in time it was just a weird thing it's like one weird project and one of the the ephemeral projects in a warehouse like that is always going to be managing the state of your orders and seeing at what stage your constraint is that was one of the biggest projects i worked on uh for bi in regards to the warehouse every manager wanted to know do we need to hire do we need to hire more employees and if so where so uh throughout the life cycle of these orders everything would be tracked and you could see how many open orders there were at every stage and sure enough everything sits at shipping so it's like all right cool whatever you're just waiting for USPS to get there and like you scan everything on the way out. But prior to that, yeah. is it um, the, the fill up station? Is it uh, one of the products that's just really slow in gathering their orders? Is it verification, et cetera? And we just had, I built this real time report of like, all right, it refreshes every however long. Here you go. Here's your warehouse data. And then always the, okay, we made this gigantic buy that came with all this bulk. What are, whatever are we going to do with, you know, several million magic cards on pallets already? We have to sort this somehow. When are we going to do this warehouse? The warehouse is just like, "Mm, we got people, but we don't got time. Yeah. Don't know what to do. Yeah. That's, and that for us, that was actually a pretty consistent conflict. I'm not sure if it was like that at troll or not, where, There, there was this like it wasn't really a rivalry or anything, but you know the eh, warehouse didn't necessarily always get along with the magic people because everyone thought the other side didn't do anything, which I guess is really more true of like work in general. The other department's oh, always yeah. going to be doing something, but that was that was something I always found interesting. And then we'd have breaks for set releases, and they would come over, yep. and it would be the same few people. Because it was the ones in the warehouse that played magic. Would you compete? Oh yeah, yeah. And we destroyed them every <laughs> time. Yeah. But as far as I know, there, there's there's no animosity because um, you know everybody. The, the, animosity is not the right word. More well, like it's a like rivalry, kind of. Well, it's like but. camaraderie through suffering because the troll warehouse is exactly that. Like it doesn't matter who you are. There are like a handful of offices in that building, a cafeteria, and then literally everything else was based around that warehouse. So everybody worked in the same conditions for the most part. So yeah. there's, there's like, so everybody was always close to one another. And, you know, you, you take your breaks throughout the day and there are, there are a bunch of arcade cabinets and we used to jam Marvel vs. Capcom too. And it was just like, you, yep. you get 20 some people <laughs> just crowded around that cabinet, just going at it. And like the, the only time there was ever any kind of rivalry was just those busts. Like that was it because the entire warehouse would come together and you'd just have teams rallying around their manager who would you know just quote unquote talk trash and like yeah they, and they would just you know speed bus they would have um and like I, th- I don't think there are videos of it on YouTube I think you just went up on uh, Facebook for some people if you knew them that were part of like individual uh, speed challenges for uh, yeah. box busting didn't matter what game it was like people would just compete to box bust in in those like. <laughs> And the warehouse has a, has a hell of a time uh, doing oh, that yeah. stuff. I never got uh, I never got invited to do any of the busts, but uh, I've heard they were always a blast to do. You know, the first few, and then after that, it just becomes tiresome being there at twelve oh one a.m. cracking that stuff. Um, but okay, so moving forward in the, in the product life cycle, life cycle. So we've talked about an order as a whole. So a product makes it on the website. 
before somebody buys it, it's gotta be entered onto the website, it's gotta be priced properly, and if it sits there or it sells, somebody has to take care of that and look at it and adjust numbers. Either say, okay, this hasn't sold, we need to, we can drop the price, or we're selling more than we thought, we need to raise the price, or uh, buy a listing, we're not getting any of these, we need them, we need to up the buy a list, or we have enough, we need to pull it, change price, etc. Yeah. So. At Mini, is it a specialist for BioList in general? One of the magic specialists that kind of does everything so else? It started out when I was there that it was just in the office, all that was handled. And then it was like, all right, well, there's too much for you know management to keep track of. Let's try to put this off on a couple other people. Yep. So it was delegated to one or two individuals. And it was still kind of like, all right, well, I'm going to go through like this weekly rotation where on Monday I reprice core sets alpha through 10th. Oh. Tuesday I do 11th through whatever the current one is. Mm-hmm. Wednesday I go from Arabian Nights through Alliances. Kind of like that. And yep. every two weeks it would change. Now, we did gatekeep our inventory. So Got it. It could on- only so many copies could sell. And, that's... and then all orders had to be approved. And that's kind of common throughout the industry. You look at Star City, Card Kingdom, those guys gate at different numbers. I think mm-hmm. Card Kingdom is eight, Star City is either four or eight. Maybe they've upped it since. I think it's eight, and it's also by rarity. Like yeah. They'll let you get 20 commons. Yep, yeah, yeah. Four to eight years. Channel gates at 50, I think no matter what it is, and Haruya gates only on new set release cards for yeah. a certain amount of time. So, like, gatekeeping like that is, is super common in the industry. It, it helps a lot. Like, people think it's more of a hindrance on the buy, and it honestly is. But it can save your bacon when yeah. it comes to to uh, run on cards because you can't pay attention to everything all the time, especially when you do staggered repricing like that. And that's that was also true for buybacks as well, as it all had to be approved beforehand. And that's something that I think a lot of companies do that's mm-hmm. kind of... Like a protection measure, like, well, buyout's happening. Why is a buyout happening? Yes. Well, yeah. everyone's dumping all of their mox opals on us. Oh, it got banned. Yep. That's why. All right, well, we're going to reject all of these orders and lower our buy price. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, you know, salaried management is for. That's why you have them so that they can do things like that mm-hmm. if you need them to after hours. Yeah. And that was, you know, kind of how that was handled was it all had to go through the approval process and once it was approved then it fell to us repricing delegated same with buy list but on that note you know some of us would be like hey you know i've noticed this card is kind of spiking and we'd have like a group talk and all right well you know we'll go ahead and up the price a little on it why not yep because obviously we're all paying attention we all know this is a thing yeah sure Let's mm-hmm. let's see what happens. And some people don't, like, some of the cards, it just doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, it's not selling, uh, whatever. Not not the end of the world. We don't have to reprice it. Got it. Uh, you know, there's, there's a floor for rares, obviously. Every place has that. Mm-hmm. And then there's certain older cards that it's just like, look, I... Same deal as TCG player. You look here, and these cards are not moving. Yep. But the price is the price is the price. Yeah, so you're not going to touch them. You, 
because yeah. the moment you drop it X percentage below, somebody's going to come in and just pull them out. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's something that I think a lot of companies get caught up on uh, when they first start out is chasing spikes, chasing stuff like that. Yeah. Instead of just trying to lock in margins. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's sunk cost fallacy as a thing. Obviously, I don't want to move it. I put money into it. But there is a point where, you know, you have to move it because you don't have the capital to just sit on that card forever. Correct. And yeah. I think that's... You're, starting out something I've noticed a lot of people are bad about. Yeah, you're so. you're running a website and you make your margins and, and as necessary you drop your prices, but you're not running a website that is one giant Swiss auction where you just keep dropping the price until it sells. No, there's a floor for everything and when it hits its floor, that's it. That's the rock the you know, the rock bottom price it's going to stay at until it moves. And was that at Troll, did you just have the dedicated, oh, I'm in charge of pricing, this is how I'm going to do it? What was that uh, uh, What was that process like? Was it a weekly cycle? Or? So it's very similar, and my entrance to the company actually meant change. So uh, Troll had a large enough inventory where they had several, uh, they called them magic specialists, and again, same for every product vertical, Yu-Gi-Oh, Pokemon specialists, board games, etc. And each uh, for magic, each specialist for the most part, was in charge of a subsection of magic. So somebody had standard, oh, okay. somebody had modern, and then at that point in time, legacy <clears throat> wasn't that big, so one person got swept up in everything from you know modern to alpha, you know, going down, right? Supplementals at, at, at that point were pretty light, like an, one FTV, right? Yeah. And they dealt with repricing uh, on the daily for uh, buy and sell. My entrance to the company, one of the first projects I took on was to build a daily report for every category to show them their top sellers from the previous day under certain constraints. And then every specialist's day began the same, looking at that report, determining what needed to be repriced off of it, why, and if there actually needed to be a re an adjustment in one direction or another, and then moving through their respective uh, subcategories within their product. I don't know the overall timetable that they wanted to see all of Magic evaluated for a reprice, if that was uh, the, on the week. Uh, but I do know that that sales report was incredibly important for, for the time being. Eventually, like most other vendors, Biolist Logic kind of caught up. And so it automated a bit, not entirely. There's still a human element to it for a while. I think there still yeah. is. But... There's a lot more flags that you get now off of your buy list than uh, you used to. There's a lot more data to, to be collected. The specialist role for Troll was a little different. So not only were you in charge of the repricing for both the buy and sell, but when uh, acquisitions actually found a collection that was large enough, they went to the specialists to actually weigh in on that buy. Okay. So there was a there was a ceiling on what acquisitions could do, and after that, it went to the specialist, and the specialist, because they were over the you know their portion of the category, could say, okay, this fills so many holes that any overage that we have on this stuff is fine because it's just yeah. going to slide in. I like the prices. I give you my stamp on this of approval on this portion. Yeah. Right. Okay, that so makes sense. That was kind of interesting. And as I mentioned before, acquisitions didn't do competitive research. 
the magic specialist did. Our specialists yeah. uh, checked TCG Player, uh, eBay, and then like the rest of our competitors down the line for the prices that we liked to pick up for cards that we need. Because as we talked about a number of times, every vendor is their own island. They do their own thing. And thus, we might have better margins on something than you might at mini. So we'll just order it right out of your warehouse and slap it right in ours because we can move it. You know? And that's a pretty common theme, you know, talking oh, yeah. to people that work at other vendors is like periodically you'll just see a buy list show up that's from another vendor that's literally like, man, you guys are paying too good on this, so ship it. Oh, yeah. Uh, being and, the only uh, at the time and probably still the largest Yu-Gi-Oh! and Pokemon vendor, the amount of time people just bulldozed us with uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! and Pokemon because we were super aggressive with our prices compared to the open market... Like, yeah. I, I can't tell you we, how we would get those emails. The, the worst thing ever is that Yu-Gi-Oh! is bound to your region. So uh, I think North America is region two. You can't play cards from regions one, three, etc. Only region two. So we would get emails all the time from other regions like, hey, you have so many of this card. I know you're not selling it. I want to buy it all. And the first thing the person that receives that email that knows about Yu-Gi-Oh has to respond back with is like, hey, look, we're region two. You can't, like, play these yeah. in your region. You understand that, right? Like, you have to make, like, because it was one of those, like, we'll bulldoze you. We don't care. Yeah. There's some, like, some weird bee. We had, like, thousands of this one little bee, and um, there was somebody flying into the country for Origins, and they were like, I'll buy all of the ones that you have and, like, everything else from this list. And we were like, cool absolutely but our cards are english not your regions and you you know about the regionality rules right yeah and when they said yeah that's fine we went okay there you go see ya yeah like when commander had just started coming up and like really becoming a force by the time i left troll and at that point we kind of pulled away from standard to support older formats and man if pete hoffling would have been like yo i'll take all your standard i'm sure troll and toe would have just like driven that half of the warehouse to Star City from Straight Kentucky. Right there and been like, here yeah, we go. Deal. Yeah. In. Like, and that's that's something I think a lot of, you know, having the dedicated, because we didn't really have a dedicated business to business. Uh, it, it was more or less like, all right, well, you have a good relation with these vendors. You have a good relation with these vendors. Yep. So if there's any liaising that needs to be done between these two, you'll handle the bulk of it, fine details will go to whoever the fine details go to. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that, you know, I found to be a little bit more universal, regardless of your business model. Yeah. Is if you're, if that's, you know, how you're doing it, great, do it. Yeah. See ya. Exactly. That's just how you're going to do it from then on. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And it, like I said, it goes underserved and we like to talk about it all the time because it happens all the time at magic fests it is yes yeah. like, oh yeah it'll be thursday friday or sunday sometimes multiple days because you'll set up those buys ahead of time so you just do it yeah. on a thursday or friday right before everything opens and then sundays that last like all right i bought all this stuff because it just came and we can't use it you guys want it there you go great see you later Enjoy. bye um wait so that's an underserved aspect of this part of the industry is that interaction and the number of times like a store goes out and they will email around like hey we're going out this is what our collection is or here are the photos this is the highlights yeah. like do you want to send somebody out and evaluate and like you get that email as a vendor and like usually you say like yeah 
okay, we'll figure this out. We'll send we'll, somebody. Somebody's paying for it. We'll evaluate uh, yeah. either there or bring the information home and come back with a number. Like one it, way or another, we're getting it. Yeah, Just it, figure it out. Yeah, yeah it, it's incredible, and it is. This is one of those things like we talk about. I talked about a couple of weeks ago. Where like everything that's, that's happening with Pokemon is above board with all the graded stuff and all these large collections moving around. All these large collections and magic, these private collections, stores, etc. It's all below board. You never know what happens because there are very large vendors in this space that get contacted first and all that information is private. For Pokemon yep. and for Yu-Gi-Oh, these markets are not as saturated with as many large vendors as magic is or as many large private collectors as magic is. And I want to stress private on that Yeah, because what's going on is very public. Whereas what goes on with Magic is very private. And yes, there's a market cap difference where Ma Magic has a market sure. cap much less than Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh! But it's also the fact that a lot of this happens, like I said, below decks that you just yeah. don't recognize or don't realize. You know. But before we head off of this, I know there's, um, you know, there's my role that what I did, which is a, a little unique and, you know, doesn't fit the product life cycle. Or um, is there anything else at minis that we didn't touch on no i don't think so i mean i like i said it's all pretty genuine general it's pretty regular yep. everyone's doing the same thing most of the time and that's uh you know yeah that's it yeah so the the last thing to discuss is really just the the business intelligence role this is uh, what i did for troll and at this you know it wasn't new then it's not new now everybody's got somebody that does this you know uh, it could just be something as simple as a, a data analyst where they're like here's all the data you know build us a report in Excel or Tableau or whatever, you know, you know software. Yeah, whatever the case it. may be. Yep. Uh, when I came into Troll and Toad and I was picked up, I already had uh, a slate of reports to, to generate for the company. There was, uh, some, some of them were individual to categories. Some of them were company-wide. And it was really just kind of this beginning of like, all right, we really want to dig into the analytics and say like, okay, you know, what are our shows doing? On average, what are our shows like? Because they wanted to start looking at like, okay, is every region as profitable as another? Are some regions more profitable than others? What about anime shows? Are they doing better than Magic? Are Nationals better than uh, Magic Fest? Obviously, we go to Origins and Gen Con, but should we, should we be looking more at conventions than something else? You know, that's, you need, you know, a BI dev for that. You know, you need you need to look through that data set. It's not just about what's coming in the through the pipeline and, and reporting on that. And so my role, I think, at that point in time in the industry was a little more unique than what a lot of other people were doing, but I don't have that inside track because often, more often than not, people that do what I do don't go from vending to external. They'll s like this and stay. then stay with a hobby. Yeah. Uh, more often than not, this industry loses people to other tech firms like Amazon or somebody else uh, in that space, Google, that, that's a larger entity. And the hobby just kind of falls away as they're consumed by the rest of it. Obviously, it's not always the case because, you know, there are people that stay in certain areas, make more money in Amazon and stick it with the hobby because they can just buy more than they ever did before and they'll stay with it. But, yeah. you know, they don't start podcasts, put it that way. <laughs> Typically, no. No. So... So I got to do that. And like I said, it's a, it's a unique insight because there really wasn't anybody else in the org that did this. And if you know somebody else from Troll were doing this podcast, I doubt that they would have made outreach to the BI dev and just be like, yo, explain what the company was trying to do at this point in time. And I can just tell you, we were playing with data and slicing it up. And like you can talk about, oh, that point in time when you were at the company, everything you know fell to poop. And like, but yeah, Troll and Toad went through some times. You know, the verification role that we talked about, well, like 
became very difficult. There was a lot of uh, churn of skilled people as there are at any company. And so, you know, you buy in product, you grade it, it gets misgraded, it goes in, you have holes in your inventory and the company just kind of falls, you know, out of prominence. And, you know, that was trackable just by looking at the website. You can see like, okay, they're out of almost everything in standard. It comes in for the set release and then it's gone. Well, why? And you're like, well, read Reddit. Yep. Yeah. That, that that was around the time that the troll and toad near mint joke was running around, mm-hmm. which got old. <laughs> uh, internally, yes. Externally, no, I enjoyed it. Because the joke didn't yeah. start as troll and toad. There's a, a lovely player up here from the greater New England area that I used to play with, and it used to be his name, near mint. Why? Because when he was looking for duels and stuff for EDH, oh, he's always like, I ranched. need... Yeah, just sleeve playable, but barely. And that was always the yep. definition because he would play in the events and, you know, he was a semi-pro. He'd hit the pro tour a couple of times. He'd just send you on a mission. He's like, this is what I'm looking for since you got nothing better to do. And it's like, all right, what condition do you want? And he's like, me near mint. And you know what that meant. Yep. And so he had nothing to do with what happened to a troll in that regard, but it just took on, it, <laughs> it took that spin. It kind of became a troll and toad thing yeah. rather than a him thing. That's pretty good. Yeah. More, more troll than toad at that point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And it, All right. yeah, it, the industry is ever evolving and things have changed since, you know, we've both been there, I'm sure, because tech evolves by the day and oh, yeah. you never know what's going on at the top levels. Like I was never privy to what was going on in the reports that they wanted generated at the, the top level what was coming down in the pipe. So it's always an interesting game. Picks. It's always above your pay grade. Yes. yes picks. It's also true. It's also true. All right. You can go first. All right, so periodically we'll go back and we'll look at a pick that we've had prior, and I am notorious for picking these cards. This is another instance where I have picked one of those cards. I am picking Zendikar Oracle of Moldaya. So this was picked way back in year one, and it was something that we've touched on periodically. Hey, guys, this card needs a reprint. It's going to get a reprint. Uh, When the reprint happens, the price is going to go down. Well, it got a reprint, and price didn't quite go down as much as we thought it would, or I think a lot of other people did. Through no fault of their own, Wizards of the Coast underproduced a jumpstart. Yes, there were restraints on production. So the jumpstart reprint that was supposed to take this to a sub-$20 card, hopefully, did no such thing. It's still hovering around $26 to $30, depending on the day of the week. So why am I picking this? Well, before too long, we are going to get out of the window for what Wizards of the Coast considers an at-will print. That's a problem for the Jumpstart reprint, because when that happens, that reprint's dead, and it's had effectively no impact on the price. When that happens, when that announcement is made, seems pretty reasonable that you can expect stuff like that to just start going up, 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 up. Because at that point, the reprints have dried up. We know what the population is. It's not largely changed, so it's going to go back to where it was. That is and great. there was a time where $35 TCG low meant 45 to 50 in a booth. That time is not too far off. So while we are in a little bit of a downslope, particularly for the Zendikar printing, because the Jumpstart has remained relatively static at around $30. Uh, while we're on that downslope of sub-$30, 
pick it up. Pick up as many as you can uh, for between, I'd say, 20 to $25. Maybe not as many. Probably stop between 10 and 20 But I think that in the midterm, this card easily gets back up to 3540 again on TCG Player. I think in the long term, this card is easily 50 to $60 at a booth once those events come Start back. back up. Yeah. Uh, agreed. I think it hits 50 sooner. It's just going to dry up uh, over time as, as people move in and pull it out of pop. You know, this is three and a green. It's eminently splashable into any deck that wants to play multiple lands in a turn or just get out ahead really early. Uh, I think it's super important to reevaluate cards like this you know, as often, eh, not as often as you can, but probably once a quarter when you're looking at something like this, especially yeah. if the timeline that they showed for set printings in 2021 is to be correct, because if I remember this correctly, we get Time Spiral 2 between Call Time and Strixhaven, which means yes. we get a supplemental in maybe March, somewhere around there. If the the time if they still hold set printing dates to where I expect yeah. them to be, and then we know what the next supplemental after that is going to be. It's going to be Modern Horizons too. So it's not just the window for a regular reprint on this is closed. We're getting to the end of the at will, and unless Wasi just decides to spew off and make a bunch more jump starts just in case, they're going to be locked into Time Spiral too. And if that's a flop, then we might see more jump start. But there's no way Modern Horizons is going to be so bad quote-unquote that we get jumpstart reprints instead because people are clamoring for that over either of the other two supplementals and this wasn't a difficult conversation to have in regards to do we want to bubble this back up it was pretty easy looking at that timeline and discussing like yeah this needs to pretty be pretty clearly yeah yeah something we we should talk about and that's where it's at yep absolutely uh, my card, on the other hand, is a card from Magic Origins that gets a decent benefit from Commander Legends, and that is uh, Tainted Remedy. We are a little behind right now on the initial spike that happened around Akoria, as you can see. And this card, when you first read it, you're like, okay, maybe this combo's in something weird. Like, it's obviously seeing play somewhere. It's seeing play in EDH is kind of holding strong. Overall... This didn't get a lot of support recently. It just has renewed interest in older strategies. So in taking a look at EDH rec, some of the newest cards that are available to you are these cards that want to play a longer game. That And that strategy already features prominently in the commanders that were being played with us previously. But then things like uh, Yorlock, which is effectively Mana Barbs the Commander, is meant to play yeah. a longer game and bleed you out slowly. Liesa, uh, very similar. similarly, uh, Liesa is going to uh, bleed you out slowly, just like Kumbal, probably faster than uh, Yorlock. And then you have Gen, which is probably the most unique new card that focuses around here because it's enchantment swappy swappies. It's basically the Goblin Welder for enchantments. Yeah. And we already have a number of enchantment-themed commanders for this card in uh, Zer. And, uh, you know, then again... Estrid? Or, yeah, Estrid. there's a bunch for enchantment enchantments now. Oh, yes. But it's... 
the the fact that it just fits into uh, the re- the the rest of these things. I wouldn't expect Gen to really push this card that much because this doesn't punish as well as some of the other black enchantments do that you want to play in a Gen deck. Gen wants to do a bunch of enchanting players, so you're looking at curses in black or red. Uh, even over, what is it, Overwhelming Splendor, the humility from uh, Amonkhet that costs six? Yeah. Whatever that is. Let me check real quick. That was Overwhelming Splendor, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So, yeah, Overwhelming Splendor. Or it's cost eight. I'm sorry. It's ridiculous. You know, it works really well again if you can dump it in the graveyard and then toot it back in. That's the kind of card you want to be playing here. Tainted Remedy doesn't, like, you, you're not forcing your opponent to gain life with Gen or any of the enchantments that you pair, you know, with Gen. This is just kind of a renewed interest card, something that plays this long grind to your game and fits in decks that makes you want to play the most magic possible. Uh, I don't think we're going to see it in the final, like, maximum hate-filled Gen builds, although if you do combo it with Beacon of Immortality, you do shotgun an opponent out of the game. Hands down, two-card combo. Boom. You're dead. This isn't Sanguine uh, Bond Exquisite uh, exquisite Blood, or whatever. Sanguine Blood Exquisite Bond? Whatever. That was right the first time. Sanguine Bond Exquisite Blood. It's not that level of good, so you're not going to see it all over the place. You're just going to see it in this kind of, like, renewed interest area. And from here, this is where I think the timeline is really, like, six months at at least because you got to wait on people to move in the card moved over the weekend uh after i picked it we saw a drop in tcg player population by a lot a decent amount or like 15 ish percent drop in population but the market price also dropped which meant people are just trying to get their copies onto tcg onto tcg player and out and until that stops we're not going to see a continued rise in this card via the new interest the new eyes on on this stuff and my expectation, like I said, is uh, six months for that. Unless for, for whatever reason, these uh, Yurlock decks, uh, Liesa and Gen, like kind of cement themselves on this card for whatever reason, because yeah. they decide to use things like uh, King Kenrith, target player, gains five life. You, you, know, you just pop somebody for five. But if you're running Sanguine Blood Exquisite Bond, you just gain five and win the game. Like, it's this card is in an interesting space we're losing population on it overall it's floating around the edh communities it will find a home in time it goes in grindy decks and there are people that just like to play long grindy games of magic and that's yep. kind of where we are we're just seeing a population drop overall and trying to attempt to attribute demand to this and like i said it's not like this card got anything radically new it's always had this kind of uh demand to it from these older support cards these older support generals none really combo with it that well or or none of them scream hey tainted tainted remedy is good in your deck because of me it just plays to this strategy and is bleeding out of the marketplace at a decent rate the the delta between biolist is and market is something that is a a little scary overall although biolist did go up by about 50 cents it's like 3x between Biolus, like 1.5 on Card Kingdom, uh, and the market dropped to like 324 over the weekend on TCG, which, like I said, is a lot more palatable than it was. Market has since gone up to 346, so that that's good if you have them. 
if you're buying in now, you can get in for a little over $3. Those are the lowest uh, copies, lowest price copies that we're seeing. Uh, and there's some near mint mixed in with these light plate copies. So like I said, people are looking to dump theirs. People want out of this card while there's this demand. I think now is the time to buy in if you can. You want to buy as low as you can and maybe buy it up to like market price. Maybe $4 would be your ceiling. And then I hold. And I yeah. hold, like I said, for at least six months because okay. the these extra copies flooding into the market are being pulled. It's kind of fudging the numbers as people try and just fire. Nah, fire is the wrong word. They're not emergency selling. They just, they're making hay while selling the sun shines. Selling into the spike. Selling into the spike, sure. And we need to wait for that to end. We need for uh, demand to continue, which I believe it will. I don't think this run into the, this flood into the market states demand. I think it's going to stay there. And we need interest in these new generals and these new cards to stay high for the next six months, which I think it will heading into time spiral. And yeah. that's when we'll see this card really take off more towards five, six, seven dollars, and you should be able to exit to buyalist around that point in time. Uh, foils probably not a bad game. You can pick them up on TCG for like four fifty for light play. Like that's not bad. Good. That's not bad at all. When Card Kingdom is buying foils for four dollars and five twenty in credit. That's the market immediately. You can see that. The delta is really small in the open market. And if you want to buy the foils now and hold, by all means, go for it. But for every foil you get, that's like half of a non-foil that you're not buying. Yeah. So definitely something to weigh there. And like I said, I don't think this card loses in the short term. I think it wins in six months. This is uh, something I am excited to actually you know, pick up and hold after running my pioneer specs last night and this is something that i would recommend in some amount over the next couple of months because the opportunity is there yeah for sure i think i think it's a solid one i think it again scratches all the boxes that everyone in mtg finance has been emphasizing lately casual edh casual edh casual edh casual edh mm -hmm. it's the type of thing that even if you miss your window on getting out on unlike my pick, the window's going to come back. Yeah. The window may come back on mine. It may not. But it definitely always comes back on casual EDH, like we touched on last week with the cyclical nature of how this mm -hmm. stuff is. Yeah. No, I and I, I love the generals that are associated with this card because they speak to casual EDH. Aside from Selenia, which is like the number one, which I assume is just built around Phyrexian Processor, dunking your life total to like two and then... Uh, just taking over the board from there essentially the rest of it like i said is just i want to play the most magic i can and if this is a four hour game i'm having the most fun possible and this gets you there because you can just yep. fort up behind it and i promise you if you look at this card on edh rec and you look at the other enchantments that go with it it's like safety sphere and like all this other stuff to just yeah turtle up hello 40 yeah but in the reverse direction you're not helping anybody you're just slowly killing them it's the opposite of Feldegrift. theme deck. Yeah, it's the opposite of Feldegrift. Just wait for me to death grasp you. But like, yeah, it's just so interesting. It's interesting that it popped, and and I I'm interested to track this over time. It's done nothing but gain, nothing but gain, and it 
I don't get it, but I have to like it. I'm not that kind that of player, my... but I have... Exactly. I'm not that kind of player, but I, game respects a game. And here we are. Yeah. I have Sunbird Invocation. Somebody has Tainted Remedy. We're two different people. You know? And some of us are stuck with a growing number of Sarkins on the ceilings. One day. Hey, you know what? I'll make my cloak of Sunbird Invocation. You can make your cloak of Sarkins on the ceiling, and I'll see you at the next event. <laughs> there we go. That works. <laughs> but... I think on that note, we are done covering what it is like to be a vendor on the day today. <clears throat> and uh, like I said, I will be having a uh, another Patreon-only podcast go up this week where I will be talking to uh, a previous guest we had on the cast who worked with me at Troll and Toad that's going to go into these uh, roles a little bit more. It can give us some more information about what it is like to work with Troll and Toad, you know, a massive vendor in the space and what it's like to work as an individual vendor in the space now, like, and the changes in the day-to-day and lifestyle. But for us this week, I am at Halt, I am Reptar on Twitter. You are... At Thirsty Sizzler. We are at MTG Cabalcast on Facebook, Patreon, YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher. I verified Audible. Great. And we'll see you next week. See you guys.